Hello, everybody. Matt, how you doing? Welcome to the podcast. I'm Let's excited about. I'm excited about this episode because we got Douglas Giles, philosopher, coming on. Lives over in Europe now, uh, but uh, I found him on Medium, and I mean, Medium and TikTok are everything to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, it really is funny. Like, I I find a lot of news and information. Through the like, you send me media. Uh, so good. Yeah, like, you pay for it, right? Is it two dollars? Yeah. yeah, I pay. For that's it like five, five or six bucks. But uh, it's uh, it's funny because when I go to other media for news, like especially like CNN or Fox, it is an actual joke. Like it's an actual joke. Like it is a farce yeah. put on to pretend. It's 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 acting pretending. It's actors pretending to do real hard hitting news. It's a joke. But like you can like even on Twitter sometimes you can get some real information like on the ground information of people just trying to give you the information not presented in a way that's on one side blue red whatever you know what I mean like yeah. it's just it's a it's a joke but uh, anyway so I'm very excited to have Douglas on and we're gonna talk about some stuff because I he just has written uh, a lot of stuff uh, that just is fascinating I'm not even gonna get into it but How what much I am would gonna you pay though for like you pay for medium. Yeah. How much would you pay for TikTok though? Let's just say you couldn't Ooh. have it unless you paid. At what price do you would you value it at? Not that it would be a good business model for them, but you personally in an economic model, the amount you I get would, out of TikTok, yeah. how much money would you part with to not lose that what you I, get from it? I would definitely do a subscription up to the same as Netflix. Mm-hmm. I think for sure. I think cuz I get as much inter- I probably get more entertainment out of information it's just too. So you value easy, yeah. the actual learning, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So it's it's, it's educational, it's, it's like entertainment. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's Navigated. everything. Yeah. I mean, it, it's crazy. I mean, I, I was at that's what I was saying, uh I was at church and I was like the pastor should have just done a TikTok. He could have done it in 30 or 60 seconds and it would have been way better. You could have got sound more effects out of a and music and it, yeah. than his whole 45 minutes. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure because I mean, what what are we doing? Doing speeches for forty five minutes on a Sunday? Like who? Who deserves that? Why? Why do you who get everybody's? Att- I mean, uh, you, people shouldn't be listening to this podcast. Who deserves to be subjected to that? But I'm saying that's what I'm saying. Like our podcast, <laughs> our podcast, we talk and we give vulnerable information about ourselves, personal history, life. We have guests on all this stuff. It's not just us telling you what to do. Right. I, in fact, we try to steer away or from showing that. off with the eloquence right. of your exposition of the scriptures. Right. Like, I mean, you don't deserve people taking their time like that. I mean, my God. I mean, the people that do TikTok and stuff like that, they are spending a lot of time creating some narrative at, with lights, sound, storyline, acting, camera angles, all this stuff in 30 seconds. And I'm captivated by it. And I learn something. And you the, and, are rubbing people the wrong way with this. Oh, I know. I, I love it. I mean, you know what I mean? You're we'll dead TikTok on, church. and I guarantee you it's really ruffling some people's minds. That, like, Well, TikTok's garbage, or it's crap, or you see all the right. junk on there. These p- people, they put they, the pastor, you know, you know what I right. mean? Like, you're really attacked. <laughs> but you're making, you're making a lot of sense, of course. There's something in that. Um, it's like a humility in the fact that you know every second counts. Right. That it takes to get a TikTok that anybody's going to watch right. that you can't. I mean, some people do it automatically with personality or whatever. Same with being a pastor, to be honest. Right. But, but the knowledge that every second can't, there can be no filler in something that really truly matters, or it can't right. be just because it's me and I deserve the attention. Right. It can't be that. Right. I mean, and then 
if if everybody realized the audience and cared about the audience, then they would be more efficient with their time, the, the mm-hmm. audience's time and theirs. And they would, they would do a lot better at public speaking. And then the long form public speaking would be unbelievably valuable. And you would really feel invested and be there. I mean, that's why I said it's the stupidest thing in the world to go to church every week. That's the stupidest thing you can do with your time. <laughs> it is totally stupid and ridiculous to go do that. Now, if get rid of the, preaching and it, the social aspect like i really enjoyed the music and i mean the people were just so great and, and the pastor was fine i'm not even you know talking bad about him but i just i mean like hold on we're talking about people's time which is the only thing we actually own and have uh, and has the real real value our money our dollars <laughs> ain't worth a damn you know yeah. uh, our lives are falling apart we're eating shit food we're eating living shit lives we got <laughs> pandemics and all this stuff but my time I can do Your what I attention. want with it, and I yeah. want to give it to things that are valuable. So just honor that. That's what everybody wants to do. Don't go to, I mean, literally, don't, why, why are we so caught up on worshiping Jesus and not living like Jesus? It's so crazy to me. Like, hold on. We don't have to only focus on worshiping him. That's all I was taught, to worship, worship, worship. It didn't teach me anything about being a human or understanding my time or my life or what I could do with it or be like Jesus. I just, I mean, I know I'm, I'm exaggerating some here, but it's just, anyway, let's, let's get, we'll get Douglas on here in a little bit. But, uh, before we do, uh, if you like hearing me, Matt and I talk, uh, you can join the BC club for two bonus episodes. You go to the bcclub.com to join. You get two bonus episodes a week. You get to be a part of knuckle breakers and the whole Emory catalog. There's a shitload in there and there's way more coming. There's a lot of music and videos and entertainment and all kinds of stuff. You get discounts here and there. It's a pretty unbelievable the songs um, and stories um, yep. is dropping in there. This, you know, oh, that's right. That, that concert we did, it's really Great, did a full mix, full oh, re-edit right. of the multicam video. Uh, really, something special we do that is only available in Emeryland. If you yep. and the BC Club and Emeryland are the same membership, you get both, and that'll be in there as of now. So that in itself is, is something worth checking out. Yep, one hundred percent. So also one of the other perks is you when you join the club. You get uh, your name read, and uh, it's been interesting because people have been sending in their nicknames. I think last week was their their, their favorite demons. Uh, there's, a, there's been a bunch, right? And so, yeah. Matt, you you have the names. Could you read? Yeah, them? I got the this, names this week. Guess what they sent in? They sent in their uh, favorite serial killer, and favorite is in they actually like them. Yeah, that, well, you know, it's like baseball cards. You, they, you know, you have a bunch of them, but you have your favorites for sure. You yeah, know what I mean? I mean it, like they like these serial killers. They yep. are fans officially. Yep. David Cameron, first person. Who's his, what serial killer is he a his, fan of? His favorite serial killer is Amy Archer Gilligan. She lives. She's uh, from nineteen ten to uh, uh, or in the night, early nineteen hundreds. You know what she did? She poisoned a husband and residents of her nursing home. <laughs> wow. I mean, kind of crazy, huh? I had to consider uh, that in my own list. I didn't know about that one. Yep. Oh, how about Jake Vinston? Vincent. Velma Barfield, uh, North, North Carolina woman. That's kind of cool. We're, you know, we're South Carolina. She was the first woman in the United States to be executed in 1976 when I was born. Uh, and she was the first woman to be executed by lethal injection. I, I don't know what she did, but she killed a bunch of people, I think. So, wow. Yeah. About uh, How about Matthew Tartle? Clementine Barnabit is an axe murderer with voodoo priestess uh, who murdered African-American families at nighttime. Why, I wonder why the nighttime. Man, what an interesting, uh, I don't know if that was the best uh, serial killer there. Okay, keep going. I don't know why that would be your favorite, Matthew. Yeah. 
There's a lot of other ones you could pick. You chose that one. No, wait, hold on. Oh, okay, hold on. Sorry. I was wrong. I misread it. It was actually, it's not Clementine. It was Caesar Baron. Okay. Uh, Yeah, who killed four women in the Portland area. (laughs) (laughs) Way better. (laughs) Sorry, man. I messed that one up. I messed that one up. All right. How about Sergio Jimenez, new member of the BC Club? Who's yeah. the f- serial killer that he likes the most? Uh, Carol Cole, uh-huh. who's who unfortunately strangled 15 women and one boy in California, Nevada, and Texas. That's a good God. Wow. But for whatever reason, Sergio sees something really yeah. that he likes. These, these new clubbers are interesting people. I don't know why. Okay. New clubber, Angel Steers. Who's your Leonard, favorite? Leonard Alfred Klein, or Alfred Leonard Klein, uh, which is interesting. Murdered, he murdered his wives with poisoned but, buttermilk and persuading them to, uh, to will all their possessions in his name. So he was like a you know, real bad guy. He'd marry somebody, sign over the will in his name, and then give them women, all his wives, love buttermilk. They fucking love that. That's crazy. Like, so I married an axe murderer plot. Yep. In a way, it's just uh, um, that you know that's what it is. You there's uh, there's probably more serial killers like that than you think that are just multiple marriage people yeah. that don't show up like you know you normally think of the the main serial killer. Like these were all alternative serial killers. You didn't none of these right. named any of the big popular ones. These I are know all these different a lot of, stories. Lot of, They're more lot fascinating. Of females too. Uh, you know what I mean? You usually, usually think of a, a male as a serial killer. So. Is that all the names this week? Yep, that's all we got this week. Um, all right. We got, speaking we also, of the yeah, uh, yeah, speaking of the songs and stories you mentioned uh, a minute ago, we are going to be doing songs and stories uh, really soon. Like next week. Uh, yeah, next week, uh, four twenty eighth, April twenty eighth, uh, Chicago, April 29th, Grand Rapids, right outside in Holland, uh, uh, Detroit. We're playing on the thirtieth, and Indianapolis, uh, the first, and that's a matinee show. So those are, those are real fun. And then we're going to be headed down to the south too, to San Antonio. Uh, in Houston on May 26th and yeah. May 27th. Uh, yeah, later, you can go to emorymusic.com to get those tickets come. It's a really intimate show, really fun. We tell stories, we take questions, we sing our songs, uh, and it's really great. And then we also have a new line of Emory Kids Clothing and Emo Mom merch uh, in time for Mother's Day. And these designs are great. And you can just go to Emory Music again for them. But I'm telling you, they are great. I'm getting some for my family. Uh, I'm just really impressed with the designs, uh, especially the Emo Mom. Sarah did that one. Um, she's done a lot of our stuff and it's just going to be really great. Uh, Matt, you want to tell them about the uh, Knuckle Breaker Challenge? Yeah, last thing, it's time for the Spring Knuckle Breaker Challenge. Ooh, if you don't know ooh, what that ooh. is, it's the fitness and mental challenge that, that we did in Emory a few years ago to just get kick-started all at the same time to have some group you know, pressure to make change in our physical and mental lives is to try to get yep. organized. I don't remember exactly what got us to doing that, but it would be the first time we ever collectively weren't drinking for a period of time or anything like that. And it was just yeah. really useful and it grew. We did it the next, we did it again because it worked so well um, that podcast listeners started doing it and then we opened it up more and more. And so we're on, it's probably its fourth year now. We do it twice a year and the spring one is now it evolves. It continues to add things and refine itself because there's feedback from the community and it gets so it's just this program to deal with the things that are typically a little bit uncomfortable so you can break out of your comfort zones and stretch yourself and become different than you are uh, in a way that we say your future self will appreciate that's basically the the type of mantra that it has and to do that 
you got to put up some money. It's one of these things that makes your motivation work is the fact that you put have skin in the game. And the clever way that we do that is you put up $50 of your own money to do this challenge. And if you complete the challenge, as in you just complete it, not regardless of how you perform on it, if you stay with it and don't quit and abandon it for the 10 weeks it is, 69 days, um, you get your money back. You know, and you can yep. you can choose to tip the money or give something to charity yeah, if you enjoy or enjoy it or give you know charity, yeah. yeah whatever help but us it, pay for this thing but yeah yeah and so uh, we've done a bunch of different ways but you basically put up some money that you can have back even if you choose to right but also the um, one of the ways that we've done it before is where there's competitions and prizes and groups and some people like that and we've done it before where there's not you're not on the hook for a group or there's not a competition it's just in it for yourself so this time the cool thing is we've got it going in in two different um, you could call them leagues if you want to there's a group league which is more competitive it has prizes and some people just get a lot of motivation from that and some people um, some people just don't like that energy or to have to feel that that other people are depending on them some people like it basically but we do yeah. a lot to make sure the competition is non-toxic and it's cooperation um and it's friendly competition anyway so we've been rebalancing um how it goes so that it works that way but we also have a you know the, some people are just self-directed they want to have this uh, structure and externalization something to work towards that they do personally and that can work for a lot of people too and even if you do that one you can do it rigorously and make it very high demands or you can customize it to achieve some of your other goals and all that but i won't go into it that's plenty of talking about it but the registration is open now it's just taking your um it's just taking your behavior seriously for the next 10 weeks to figure out if yep. you know what changes you can make and see if you can get yourself in a better spot learn to trust yourself more you can do that you can go to knucklebreakerchallenge.com to register so go check that out you can find more details about exactly what it looks like in there but it's exercise uh you know there's a meditation there's other things that you do um and you can customize to to you know build yourself into the person that you'd like to be uh yeah i'm gonna take the fat off my waist and put it in my butt that's where I'm, I want to get a dump truck. And speaking of putting fat in your butt, marriagesupply.com with code BCPOD, you get 10% off. Marriage Supply is the number one site in the world for married couples to uh, just, you know, get a sex toy. Enjoy, enjoy something nice. So we have some curated boxes. We got lubes. We got dildos. We got vibrators. We got cock rings. We got it all. And uh, it's just a great way to buy buy a sex toy. And it just starts the conversation. Helps that communication with your uh, special loved one there um, where you can just, uh, you know, hey, guess what I bought? And then, it, you know, you're going to be talking about sex. You're going to be you know, a little excited. We're going to try this thing out. It's going to be fun. 10% off at marriagesupply.com with code BCPOD. All right, let's bring Doug on. Douglas. We were just talking about dopamine. Matt was telling me that uh, rats, if you can block their dopamine receptors, that they won't even go get food. Like if you set food right beside them, it'll, they'll eat it. But if you set it like a foot away, they'll just die. <laughs> I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking uh, that's interesting, even having you on and talking about people and, and how we interact with each other and how much dopamine that we are trying to get these days. It seems like seems like dopamine probably is the biggest uh resource of like social media probably even right y'all think that like some motivation it, I, I was I, I mean you really do get a hit of it it's so you don't think about it that way but it feels that way to me i don't i don't know maybe i'm way off here anyway 
Uh, but Douglas, we appreciate you being on here. We, uh, I found you on medium and you are, uh, Dr. Douglas Giles from Elmhurst university and, uh, you have a PhD in social and political philosophy from the university of Essex, uh, in continental philosophy. And then you have an MA in religious studies. And, uh, and then it says in your, this is in your bio, in your academic research in social and political philosophy, you use phenomenological, uh, uh, a phenomenological, phenomenological, phenomenological. See, I don't need all the words that you hold. <laughs> I can't even pronounce correctly. <laughs> so I was like, we got to get him on the show. <laughs> I, what, what does that even mean? Phenomenological. Well, it's, it's the study of phenomena. And it, it's a, an idea in philosophy, an approach to philosophy that started with Edmund Husserl, who was a German philosopher early, early 1900s. And he said that how we can understand who we are in our world is by just looking at the phenomena within our own mind. What is consciousness? Well, look at consciousness. So, you know, it's like, I have these impressions, I have these ideas, and, and that's, what does that really mean? And it gets very complicated very quickly, and especially in how Husserl does it. But a phenomenological approach can be taken on any subject, because you're just looking at the phenomena, because the biggest trick to the uh, approach is to let go of your preconceptions. What do you see? What is really there? Mm-hmm. And that's something that's been guiding me in, in all of my research. That's why I put that as front and center of everything that I do as a researcher. Try to put my preconceptions aside, be open-minded to the world, be open-minded to what people are willing to tell me and what is actually there. Mm-hmm. And it would experiential be a word that's similar? to, to yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, experiential or empirical. Empirical. Okay. Experiential is the, the, what I, you know, experience itself is the, is just the, the language of stuff. We're, you know, musicians by trade and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I think of the same thing is just, you're always trying to create when you're performing, you are, mm-hmm. uh, there's always this awareness that you create an experience for other people, for instance. And so this, uh, what their preconceptions are or are not really, you know, factor right. in, in that same way. Well, like if you're a musician and you're doing a, a gig and you're playing a show and you have an audience and you have to feed off the audience. You have to respond to what they're giving you. I mean, yeah, you have a set list and you have an idea of what you're going to do there, but if you're completely oblivious to the fact that they're not into what you're doing, then then you've kind of lost the plot. And so the plot is you are interacting with an audience and that's true in all human interactions where we're interacting with other people. And if you're not listening and you're not looking and you're not paying attention, you're not, taking in the phenomena that's there and you're losing it. Mm-hmm. So I was, have been reviewing your medium articles that, that Toby sent and found. He said, this guy seems like if you write up your alley, Matt, and certainly it is, I've just really have gotten a lot out of it. Um, but I haven't spent the tremendous amount of time with all your stuff or your books. Um, but I've got a lot out of your medium articles and I really appreciate that they're short because it has, you know that they're on the short side for philosophy and stuff like that and i just mm-hmm. greatly appreciate that so thank you for that i love the style sure. and the stuff that you're covering i want to offer a little bit of a framework of what i ho- thought what i kind of pulled together of maybe what we could talk about today and um but to try to tie all the ones that we've looked at uh together and that is to start with the smallest and then go out to the biggest so okay. um concepts that i found in there and the one that really gripped me right away is the the way that you talk about um, how 
we're born with intuitive values. And then we, before we even know there's a world, we know there's people and we, and then at somewhere in there you go to, there's ego. And this is all from different spots in your articles, but then there's, you talk a lot about the self, like what the self is, and that's not the whole being, but just the self part, or maybe the, where the role of the ego is there. Um, and that happens in development. And then you get into the Heidegger stuff with the, I don't know if I say the word Dyson or Dyson, right? Where there's the design. Design, design, design. Yeah. And that's the, and then the be the idea of that there's the, the person, the being, and then they're part of a being sphere that's the, right. where they're embedded in the environment. Mm. And then that concept, uh, then there's the resentment part that comes from Sharer or I don't, how do you say his name? Sharer, Sheller. And, um, and so then that, then that type of the way that people deal with that stuff then creates this society and this whole, uh, fabric you know out of which people are operating in these ways that they're often ignorant of even how they're reacting and why they're acting that way and then the definitions of love and hate and then all the way out to you know world conflict and war uh it's kind of those things all seem to be related from the very very small and the individual all the way out to the societal implications of that so your work kind of spans that whole territory um does that sound like a those things all connect to you in the way that I'm connecting them. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you took a lot on there in that uh, paragraph of description and I appreciate <laughs> that. That's, that's, it makes me sound very intelligent and, and very worldly. So that's good. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a reasonable uh, summation of it that, that I think what, to piggyback on one of the things that you said there, I, I, I place a lot of importance on understanding humanity, society as this continuum between the individual and the larger society. And one of the problems that I have with my academic colleagues is they tend to focus on one extreme or the other. And there's very, very little uh, consideration of the fact that, no, the individual is a part of society. And they say, oh, yeah, that's true. The society dictates the individual. Uh, no, no, the, the individual is pushing back. It's not a, it's never a, this one way relationship. And we have a self and we have a beingness and we do push back. And obviously as an individual, we only have a limited effect on society as a whole, but that doesn't mean we have zero effect and certain people have more effects than others. And it's a complicated thing. And I want to embrace that complexity that even in in any one-on-one interaction, there is going to be give and take, and it's a dynamic. Dynamic. That's one of the words that I've really fallen in love with, to think of it as a dynamic and to think of us as an individual as being immersed within a world as part of a constellation of relations that we have with other people, other things, and other social institutions. Well, what does it mean to be a, a self or to, to be, what is the fundamental being that a person is that they come into the world with? What is that? Uh, well, you know, it's, that's, it's easy to make some glib comments, but it's, it's, it's still a mystery. Mm-hmm. You know, philosophers have been trying to deal with this for over 2000 years. And there are a lot of ideas of the self and even ideas that there is not a self. David Hume was like that. Certain schools of Buddhist thought are like that. There isn't really a self. It's just some sort of, of illusion or mistake. Uh, but I, the one thing that I do like the most when you think about the self is that the philosopher John Locke said that what makes a person a person 
is our memories. And Augustine says something very similar to this too, that we are our memories. And what Locke had said is that I can look back at my life and there was the earliest memories of childhood up until the present day. And what is common in that entire thread of experience is this something that I, I can't quite name what it is. I can't quite say what it is, but that's me. And Hume said, well, if you can't say that it's you, then it doesn't exist, which is, I think, a bit pig-handed on his part. But that we have this common set of experiences and phenomena within our own selves. That's who we are. And that changes. And then going back to Husserl, one of the things that he talked about, again, an idea I absolutely love, he talked about how every one of our experiences that we have layers sediments of memories and consciousness onto us. And when we have things happen to us, that changes our beingness and it changes our perceptions and interactions with the world. And we see through that sedimentation within our own consciousness and that's part of who we are too. We develop bad habits, we develop phobias, we develop uh, good and positive relations and ideas and feelings about ourselves, our other people, the world. And, and this self is this constantly evolving, again, dynamic, and all these constellations of interactions that we have and, and relationship dynamics with every single person that we interact with. And so it's this constantly evolving thing. And that's where I dispute the whole Buddhist idea of, of they would say that, yes, that's true. And that's why it's not real because it's constantly in flux. It's not permanent. It's not fixed. I'm fine. I'm fine with that. Maybe but experientially, I, you have a self that to, to you have a set of memories or a causal history that you do experience that does inform your next moment from your perspective, at least. Yes, yes, absolutely. So there's no point in denying the existence of a self. Yeah, I, I think that's yeah, I think that's foolishness because uh, the simplest way of, of talking about that is well, well, who's having these experiences? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Something has to be having the experiences. So the but I mean so it's there's the internal and the external thing. There's the inner ex subjective experience that we have that you can't argue with that in that I for sure am having one right now. And I can only guess that you and Toby are having one. I feel pretty strongly about that. And I know you would assert that you're having them, but at least I know that I'm having one. I'm having an experience right here, right now. Right. And, and we, go ahead. Right. I was saying that, you know, that was Descartes thing. You know what? The only thing that I can be certain of is I am a thinking being. I'm having these thoughts. I'm having these experiences. And beyond that, you know, do other minds exist? Well, it's not absolutely sure. Do you really exist, or are you just right. a figment of my imagination? Mm -hmm. When you so in your that, that, view, Matt, before you move on, that that is something that I've actually like just thought about so much, uh, especially you know, like um, just I guess in recent years, just the idea of like even like we grew up very Christian in the South Carolina Bible Belt. And the idea of God, if you break it down, is we are just something in his brain. Like God thought mm -hmm. us up out of nothingness, and now all of a sudden we are. So 
we could just be in God's brain or a simulation or whatever that might be. And, and are you, when I like, cause when I perceive you guys, you know, it, it's uh, like that movie, vanilla sky, when uh, Kurt Russell goes, I'm real, I'm real. And, 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 you know, Tom Cruise goes, no, you know, he has to do this, uh, jump off a building or something like that to prove that he's, this is a simulation. But I, I wonder that too. And when you say you are your memories, that one freaks me out a little bit because I'm terrible at memory. I have an awful memory and I, but I do know, I mean, I have the memories I can access them like when I was a kid and stuff like that. But what do you say when it's like, I'm not that person that I was when I was six years old or 16 or 26 or 36 or now about to be 46. Like I'm different, but, uh, if you catch me at the wrong moment or the right moment or whatever, I go back to that like almost like arrested development or something like that. I do become that person again. And so I'm, I'm them. I, I am Toby at six years old still, but I'm trying to in some ways change or whatever. So when you say you, you are your memories and experiences, I believe that, but also are, is that actually, are you saying that the memories are you like, like, like a, I'm, I'm a huge sports fan. Uh, a, a lineman learns a bunch of new skills, but in the heat of a game and he's nervous, he goes back to what he always could do. Just uses, you know, uses speed or something, you know, like he goes mm-hmm. back to the person he was when he was in high school, as opposed to the NFL player. I mean, are you that memory? Like, is that what you actually are? Does that make it even, even any sense? Yeah. No, that, that makes perfect sense. And it's a wonderful question. Thank you. Uh, it's, there, there are two levels to the answer to that. Now, I'll do this a lot. You'll, uh, you'll probably get annoyed with me because I always answer things in multiple dimensions. I but love it. Uh, the first, the first is, is that understand that when we talk about memories, we're not talking necessarily about conscious memories. Uh, someone said something that I thought was really brilliant recently that said that just because you aren't conscious of it doesn't mean you haven't received a message. Mm-hmm. And so, like you said about the linemen and, and uh, people who are smarter than me about uh, how the mind works would say that there, there is you know, conscious knowledge and then there's kind of body memory, body knowledge and habitual knowledge and just these various things. And so when you're learning a skill, and this is something that Heidegger talked about, that uh, you learn a skill and then you forget the skill. You, you forget that you know it because you just do it. Mm. And so memory being who we are, as your question is, and that, that first level of it is do keep in mind that, you know, memory is this very multi-layered thing. And uh, it's this vast warehouse of who we are and what our memories are. The other thing about you raised the very good point of, well, we do change as human beings. So am I the same person as I was? And I look back and I say, well, am I the same person I was when I was 18? And I go, well, I sure as heck hope I'm not. Right. And because if you're not a little bit ashamed of who you used to be, you probably haven't grown. Yeah. And I've got a lot to be ashamed about. I mean, I've never done anything really bad, but just, you know, I used to be shy. I used to be timid. I, I, used to, I was that kid that never spoke in class I was too terrified to ever say anything and so fate uh, condemned me to become a professor so that I could be speaking in front of people all the time and and that's a real change in in who I am and what I am I mean I used to have very particular views that I completely disagree with now uh, but and I look back and yeah it's like is that me or is that not and in one sense it's not 
because the dynamic has changed. But yet I still remember that. And I still can think about certain things that I would say to someone. And this pops up in my mind every now and then, not to get too personal, but it's like, oh, Greg, I said that to her. What was I, about 25 years old, all those years ago? And I I would never say that now. Yeah. And yet, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel like me. And so you have this different relationship, this ever-evolving relationship with your own memories, with your own facts. So that's in the that that makes me think of the word you said. This is one of your favorite words, dynamic, because it seems like all of your past self and actions and causal chains and skills and things that you forgot, or your body knows, or even your genetic information and knowledge that you don't have any direct access to, but yet informs you. Those are all the things that you have with you to encounter whatever present moment you are to then know what you know in the moment. Like there's a difference in, I don't know who said this exactly, but I got it from somewhere relatively recently that there's a difference in knowledge and knowing. Um, Mm -hmm. And that knowledge is like a, it's just information like in a place or something, like maybe your brain or whatever. But to knowing is like it, like what the combination of that, in the present moment and what you can only know moment to moment somehow. So it's like, I only have access to my past as an influence on what happens next. That's just one of the influences, but also the situation and environment that I'm in right now is like the other half of that dynamic. Yeah. And uh, it's a similar idea. I've, I've heard labeled as the difference between knowledge and wisdom and knowledge is, and even before that is like data. I've got data then I have knowledge about the connections within the data, but wisdom is really knowing what to do with the, with the, with the knowledge. And so it's, it's this, and yeah, dynamic, I always come back to that, that it's this ongoing dynamic of how we interact with our world. We're embedded in a world, we're interacting with the world, we have no choice, but to make choices and act in our choices. And every choice that we have, every experience that we have, it slightly changes us. And that accumulates over time. Mm -hmm. So let's start at the values part of, you know, can you describe, I'm just botching it if I say it, but could you say it in your words, what it means to come into the world and have values intuitively? And then you then, I don't know how, you know, you go from there to like what you think ought to be and not, not ought to be, you show up with that, it sounds like. Well, I think you, you may be, I think that's coming from my book on design, right? Yeah. I think that's where I'm yeah. headed with this is where is that? What is yeah. the embeddedness of us in this world? Yeah. And that's, that's, that's more Heidegger's idea than mine, to be perfectly honest with you about the coming into the world with values. And I, I'm not entirely sure if it really is the case that, that we have that or not, but I think what I have to accept with that is that we do, or we are born with a certain sentiment for other human beings and very much uh, a need to recognize other human beings as important and as valued and the need for others to recognize and value us. And in my other book on, on misrecognition and struggles for recognition, I talk a lot about the importance of that need for recognition. And that is something that's intrinsic. You're not a human being, literally, if you don't have that need for recognition and recognition relations with others. And it's as simple on one level as 
well, you recognize me as someone you wanted to talk to, as someone you wanted to have on your show, which is a valuing of me, which I'm very honored. If I was, you, you read my stuff on Medium and go, oh, this guy's a putz. He's, he's, he didn't, we would never think of me again. And so that's recognition. And obviously, if I care at all about uh, the world or myself, that's the type of recognition that I want. Of course, I am a writer, I'm a philosopher, and I do genuinely want to make the world a better place. So having people recognize, oh, you have a good idea, let's talk more. That's, that's fantastic. And so that's a need that every human being is born with. It manifests in very different ways because we're all different people. We're all individuals. And in my ways, I love ideas and like to talk about ideas. And that value uh, is, is very ingrained in us. And beyond that, you know, we, we all, we, we, I think almost everybody wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be a part of something. Uh, some of us more than others. I'm a very introverted person. It's like I have my wife and that's pretty much all I need. <laughs> but uh, other people are like, oh, I need friends. I must have, a, you, know, you know, my wife does have a friend who is like, if she hasn't talked to 20, 25 people in a different day, she's like she's lonely or something. I, I exaggerate only a little bit. And so our needs are all different, but we have them. We, and, and we just seem to have this sentiment for other human beings. Uh, and that's something that a lot of philosophers have talked about, that uh, the sentiment and empathy, uh, Edith Stein talked about this, Scheller talked about this as well, empathy for our fellow human beings, to be able to say and feel concern for other people, to be moved by the suffering of other people, that's part of what being a human being is. And that's, I think, the best value of being human. And, and it's fascinating that that we come into the world with this essence or values like that. Before we even know there's a world, we have feelings about what should and shouldn't be. Right. I don't know if that's you or Heidegger, but either way, that's that's fascinating. Like, but is you that already hijacked? know. But that's what I'm, I'm wondering. Is that hijacked by your family and who you, like your values, like you're born with values maybe about, something but then is it like for, for example going back to the christian thing i grew up probably thinking everybody's cool and and we'll, we'll be fine until i learned within my social structure and my family structure that gay people are bad right so now i think oh enemy and i'm wondering like when we talk about when you guys are talking about values is is, is a value system uh created like you have some values and then is it created more in depth like as a, a survival tactic within my family, like, uh, you know, like if I don't, if my values don't line up with the people I'm living with, yeah, they alter them for it, you. Then I'm going to get in real trouble and I'm going to, I'm oh, going to yeah. be lonely or everything. Right. Mm-hmm. How, how does that work within that, that dynamic? That's where recognition comes in because that need for recognition, the need to be valued and accepted by other people, it starts with your family and your friends and your other relatives and you learn values. You have your own inherent sensibilities of things. But like uh, my father was an atheist. My father was one of those atheists who hated religion, uh, hated liberals, hated religion, hated, hated, hated left, right, and center. And so I was raised, and I remember still vividly uh, him saying, you know, my son is never going to grow up to be religious. He didn't say it. I don't know why I did that in a Southern accent. I'm sorry. But, <laughs> uh, because he, he was from Chicago. But he, and he believed that. And you know, so I grew up old. 
religion is bad. Democrats are evil. Okay. Uh, which is a weird combination, but, uh, and I mean, I outgrew that because, you know, I met these people and you know, it's like, I met Democrats and they're not evil. I met Christians. They're not evil. I met gay people. They're not that weird after right. all. Um, it's that experience and then the new sedimentation of consciousness. But, oh, yeah, you have to. And if you grow up, and, and I, I hear from many people, it's like they grow up in an environment that's really foreign to who they are. But they have to get along. You have to get along with people, whether it's your family or your neighbors or whatever. And whether you're red in a blue state or blue in a red state or whatever American vision of this you want to look at, uh, and I'm an American living in the Czech Republic, and I don't have too much friction around here with people, but obviously you learn these norms around you that are slightly different than what you're used to. And you adapt because you have to. You have to function in a world and you have to be accepted. You don't want to be a pariah. I've always felt like there are certain people who are more or less programmable by their social fabric and environment. Um, I mean, I say that as a person who feels that I've always had a hard time not wanting to conform to the pressures that feel like they're trying to make me conform. I think our audience has has a lot of that, too. But that must just be something wired in in a temperamental way or something. I don't know. But it's just I can't get over the fact that it seems to me that people come into the world with values before they even know anything else. Like and then that encounters the world and the times and the place and the family and the religions that they live in. And then there's like a little clash there as you become a self and then start to define those boundaries of am I this? Am I with this? Am I, a per-? you know, so when it gets to just being the self, um, what is your definition of what the boundary of the self is like the little s self the part of the whole, like what, how do you, how do you, how does a person, what is the boundary of a person? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> it's, it's such a tricky thing to talk about, isn't it? I mean, to even consider that, that idea. And it's not like I've never considered it before. It's just that I don't really have an answer yet because where do you end? And I wrote recently something uh, that hasn't been published yet about freedom. And the idea of freedom is similar to this idea of self that you're talking about. We say, oh, for freedom means being this, that, or the other thing. But what people forget is that freedom is a relation. And so freedom means nothing except in the context of interactions with other people and being part of a society. And it's the same with the self. In that, okay, well, I'm a self, but what does it mean to be a self, capital S or small s? But you can only understand that in the context of the world that you're living in and in the context of the relationships that you have. And, you know, there's that idea, uh, I I assume it's allowed to quote quote scripture in your show. It's allowed. Uh, Yeah, okay. Okay. you shall, um, a man shall cleave unto his wife, which is, I, I think, is a lovely thought because you stop being separate entities mm-hmm. in a marriage, a good marriage. You become this other thing. And I think that's definitely true in my marriage, which is uh, going on 19 years now. Uh, and it's been a blessing to me that I am not entirely an independent person anymore. Of course, that's obviously fine because she's very good for me and I'm good for her. At least I hope so. Uh, and 
that that constantly changes and that, that and I think I'm a different person now because I've been married to her. I'm a different person because I've now lived in my third country. Uh, these things are transformative. And trying to get back to your circle back to your question here about where does the self end? It's this again this dynamic and it, there's no real boundary. I don't want to say gray area because that doesn't seem appropriate either. But it's just constantly evolving thing of how we adapt and make choices and change ourselves and our lives and our persons. That kind of colors the Buddhist idea, though, that you're, there is no thing because you can there's nowhere to draw a boundary. Like if you go because you could say somebody is no bigger than their ego, like the part of their mind or body that is feels like it is in control. Like that's the smallest, I guess. I mean, the smallest way I can think of it is just like you're so narrow. You don't even see the outside world. You're not in touch with your body. You're just in touch with like that, whatever's narrow as possible thing. Um, but you're more than that. Like your whole mind seems to be more than just your ego, for instance. And then you're mm. there. And then your mind, is that just your brain? Could you be a brain in a vat and still be you? Or do you have to be embodied <laughs> in a body, embodied in a body? And then do I end? I mean, Toby, do you feel like you end at your epidermis? Like, <laughs> no, is that where you end? I mean, well, well I, I like Douglas's talking about his wife. Cause I, I, uh, so, uh, I mean, I've talked a little bit about this, but you know, there's ups and downs in your marriage. And so I've had ups and downs. And at this point I'm, I'm 45, I'll be 46 soon. Uh, I realized that who I was when we first got married doesn't exactly work anymore. And so it's more to me, it's more like there are boundaries and then I have to keep redrawing them because if I don't redraw them, then, then it, the world only keeps getting bigger and I have to stay small in a way or something like that. So now my interaction with my wife changes me so much. I go, Oh, I, I can't interact with her this way. Or maybe that was immature or maybe I need to be more immature and more fun. Or, you know, maybe I'm too grizzled now as an older man or not, <laughs> not, not happy enough, or maybe I'm too silly or whatever. Uh, to me, it feels like that there aren't, there's only self-drawn boundaries. And then you have to realize, can you live within that boundary? Or do you need to re redraw? But isn't that artificial? If you're drawing the boundaries, isn't that, that's not, you, you, you're not getting to say where you're like, isn't it no, easier just to I, say you're part of, you are the universe. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, or you, or you get to decide where you artificially draw a boundary and call it Toby. Well, it, it's interesting. Y'all are talking about Heidegger and, and trust me, I, I mean, Douglas, all your, that I really do appreciate how you're explaining philosophy and your medium articles, the way you write, because it helps me because if I had to, it feels so overwhelming, like what we're talking about right now, still so huge and big. And when you can make something small, but pack it full of so much information, Heidegger was talking about, uh, I'd never even heard of this before, but the, uh, what he calls thrownness of our exi mm -hmm. existence and you're just thrown into this world. You don't have any choice. And all of a sudden here you are. And then you do have choice. You actually all of a sudden have to make them <laughs> or get to whichever way you want to look at it. And I was thinking about that. That really kind of shook me a little bit because I was like, Oh, well, as soon as you get to make a choice, you at least have that. Like you, we're talking right. about memories and stuff like, but at least I got that thing. I, I mean, I did choose the slice of pizza instead of the other thing <laughs> or whatever it might be when you're a kid, you know, I mean, you know, you, you know, Oh wait, if I cry hard enough, she will bring me some milk or what, you know, whatever, however small you want to make it. And I was thinking that that's part of it as well as that you didn't have anything. And then all of a sudden you have something. And now what is it? It, it we're talking about is that you and and does it have a boundary or not or whatever but you you didn't even choose any of it this is just what you got now what are you going to do with it and that that seems like it is kind of infinite like 
it w- the only things that are, you know, we'll die one day, the stuff will move on. But I mean, you do have some infinite like possibility. So Douglas, I did want to talk about this though, because the, the way I found you was on your medium and it was the article in 1914, Max Scheller described much of the next 107 years. So first of all, great title <laughs> that got me right away. <laughs> so I, I got to read this thing. Oh man. Yep. Cause I, I just, I love that, uh, you know, I guess in some ways that was a futurist back, you know, in 1914, in, in a way he was, he was predicting this stuff, but, uh, I, we don't have to go into all about Max Scheller or whatever, but, uh, mm-hmm. I just thought it was fascinating this idea of, and you, you pronounce it resentment. Is that resentment? It's resentment. Resentment. I'm sure. Yeah. And I'm sure we're all pronouncing it horribly and a French person <laughs> would be appalled, but, uh, yeah, it's resentment because there's an extra S in there too. So it's not just resentment. It's, it's something beyond and bigger than re- mere resentment. And, and, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? I got the, what, what you wrote here. If you want me to, uh, I'll just read it. Resentment, resentment is an incurable, persistent. I know I'm butchering. It, I'm sorry. Persistent feeling of hating and despising, which occurs in certain individuals and groups. It takes root in equally incurable impotencies or weaknesses that those subjects suffer from. They can permeate a whole culture era and entire moral system. The feeling of resentment, I'm, I'm blowing it. Sorry. Relates to false moral judgments made on other people who are devoid of this feeling. Okay. So that sets the stage of it. Tell us a little bit more about it and ex- expand on that for me, if you don't mind. Yeah. And it's, it's a fascinating concept that uh, it existed before Scheller, but, but uh, he really took it in, in a positive direction as much as you can take such a horribly negative thing into a positive direction. And this sense that one can have or develop of this deep resentment, frustration, this hostility, because you feel impotent, because you feel weak, and you don't feel a part of the world. And that sense of recognition that I talked about earlier, that need for connection that we have, when a human being doesn't have that sense of connection, Resent them all is one of the things that can come out of that. If you can't deal with the fact that you feel out of touch with things, if you feel that you don't belong in the world, that's a horrible feeling, that you have no place to be, no place to go, or if you don't even know who you are. And what Scheller said is, you know, you have feelings of love that can inspire positive action. When you have feelings of connection with people, then you communicate with them and you, you create things with them. But if you don't have that, you have the resentment is a state where you, have, where you lose not just your connection with the world, you lose your connection with values themselves. Because if you don't feel valued, then you don't value yourself. And if you don't value yourself, then you lose that sense of what, your, what values are at all. And... You know, you can think here about well, with this this thing they talk about uh, pathological, uh, a person who's a sociopath or a psychopath, that they don't. It's not just they don't feel empathy; it's that they don't have a sense of value. They don't have a sense of what it means to love or care or respect other people. Mm-hmm. And. You know, we can, I I don't want to get political here and name names, but so many political movements, uh, current and past, seem to be based on this sense of a loss of values. And then because values have to come in, there's there's never a vacuum there. 
So what comes in are what Scheller calls these value delusions, these false moral judgments, and the tendency to belittle, to degrade, to dismiss, or to reduce genuine values, as well as those that have them. And one of the things that we do hear so much about now is this hostility towards um, critical race theory, towards diversity, towards inclusiveness, uh, the hostility towards uh, gender issues. And the idea of inclusiveness, the idea of uh, let's start accepting people, let's stop dividing people and start uh, looking at our, our, our positive connections. That's a value. But if you have resent, resent them all, because you feel that no connection, you, you look at that and you go, oh, I, you're not allowed that either. You're not allowed to say mm-hmm. gays are okay. You're not allowed to say women are, are equal to men. You're not allowed to have all of this. And we see that. And we're really seeing that in the U.S. right now. And I think that's always been a part of, of, of America, unfortunately. But that then becomes something, this, this seething resentment and this sense of loss and these false delusions are so easily manipulated. And they're manipulated by politicians and they're manipulated by conspiracy theorists. And that becomes very destructive very quickly. That to me still, you know, goes all the way back to the values and the, what do you call them? The, uh, the fake values. What's the word for that? The value delusions, value delusions. delusions. Yeah. So to me, that seems like it still stems from this early childhood development, attachment, being recognized, being seen, being validated in a safe environment to keep the, you know, on the good side of that seems to be a real critical piece of that. But it also is interesting how we as individuals can have those in narrower areas. Like there's like you can be a system of a person or a culture that like these things become symptoms of not only an individual minds and they're not all or nothing, but then also leak out into families, social groups and, and bigger and bigger slices where they begin to it's like it's contagious in a way mm-hmm. or something like oh, yeah. that. So it, so it expands and it grows. It's like a mind virus of value delusions where you've been taken off of the inherent values that you came here with and are now adopting these other ones as a way to be recognized or seen power or have impact or like know you're real or something like, like to mm-hmm. assert um, in the world, it seems like to me. No, absolutely. And subcultures of all kinds, whether it's uh, love for Star Wars or a cult even, uh, you find that sense of reciprocity and recognition and values within that subculture. People are looking for that. That's that's hardwired into us, that that need for some sort of place to belong and sense of acceptance. But when the criteria for acceptance and inclusiveness is defined as opposition to some mm-hmm. of, of you know, Nazis, of course. Uh, what is a Nazi? Well, a Nazi is someone who hates Jews and gays and socialists and you know, on and on and on. And beyond that, it's like, yeah, it's, it's a hatred and it's an opposition. But we see that so much in politics. And we see some of that in certain subcultures as well. Uh, Social media, also politics and now social media, just, I mean, even on accident, like maybe it's not their intention, but it does drive behavior. Like it's an effective mm -hmm. driver of group behavior to 
that fuel that the that opposition or hate is like motivating or oh, co- yeah. I mean, causes a cohesion you you started this uh this uh, encounter talking about dopamine which is not mm-hmm. something i'm terribly familiar with but uh hatred and you know saying i hate blah blah and you get 10 likes for saying that that's i think qualifies as a dopamine response. You're getting something positive back from that. You're getting a sense of self. You're getting a sense of accomplishment. You're getting a sense of us. I I belong. I matter because people like the fact that I hate those people. And social media is the perfect environment. Mm -hmm. It's like a collective individualism or something. It's like collectivism sounds better to me than individualism, Mm -hmm. if you could get there. (laughs) But we have this like fake substitute for it where you – it's as if you're in a collective of hating, but really it's just a, it's just, and I mean, you talk about this, so I'm trying to use your words and stuff, but it's a narrow hate and narrowing go together, but it's like this false sense that you're in a group, but you're not really cohesive with the other people. You're just, it feels like you're resonant with other people, but each person is kind of more only thinking about themselves. They're, they have a narrower view when you're engaged in hate. It's a narrowing effect. Yeah. It's interesting too, that Max Scheller does uh, like really believe in love. It seems like, and uh, oh, yes. the, the, how powerful that is and, and what, what it is. And when y'all are talking about the social media, you're right. Um, it uh, says Scheller described the difference uh, between actions from love that seek to improve others, which seems like it's very hard to do these days and the actions from negative values that seek to diminish others. It really does feel like uh, in many ways, social media has exacerbated this diminish the other person. My team must win. And that, and that's, and I, and I see it so clearly because that's what my religion was. My, my, my Christianity was all other religions are evil, bad, danger, even within Christianity, you know what I mean? Yeah. Even oh, yeah. other denominations. I mean, the Baptists were bad and you know, there were several <laughs> Baptist churches in my town. They weren't like us. We were the chosen one. We were the ones. And so the goal oftentimes was to diminish any value they had. It was like exclusively right. evil. It wasn't like, Oh, they could be good and bad. It was like, they're bad. And when, and when you do that, you know, when you t- say, you know, what, put it now like i see it that way with like vaccinated or unvaccinated it's like Mm -hmm. if if they're unvaccinated evil or if they're vaccinated hero in a way as and it steals some of the humanity away but it really does try to look it seems like it's very uh tries to diminish people a lot like it it really is a tool for diminishing and and trying to lift yourself up for for some reason yeah and if you can put people into categories put people into labels and and then slap the values, the stereotype values onto those labels, then you're done. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to think Mm -hmm. about it. And as much as I tend to like humanity, uh, most human beings are very lazy thinkers. They don't want to think about things. They just want, you know, tell me what to think, tell me what to feel. I'll feel that and, and go on and move on with my life. Is, is it that those things are very cohesive for the group, Toby, like your like that, that narrowing of your group to down to 80 people in one church, that at least is functional somehow. Like that makes, you know, that makes it where yeah. the world makes sense in that way well, though. But, and I that, even think it, I think you're right. And I even think it kind of goes into one of the other, the other things I know we're, we're running a little bit low on time here, but uh, you, you talk about conspiracy theories and I, mm-hmm. the more I think about cons- conspiracy theories is the more I think about once again, the the church I grew up in, it, it really does feel like, uh, I think you were saying it's a, it is a truth claim you said, uh, but uh, so there is, so, you know, it's trying to say something and it's that, 
we have some secret. You make a big point uh, talking <laughs> about this, the secretness of it. And I love that because it's really true. We have this secret and we know that there's more to it and you don't have that secret. And if you come join our team, maybe we can let you in on it, but mm-hmm. we do know something that the other people don't. And so then that gives you some kind of elevated thought of yourself that you are special or chosen that you were able to figure it out or somehow you were in yep. this. And I, and I think that's kind of the way it is like, uh, it feels that way. It feels very religious. You know, I know we're, we're talking about social media a little bit, maybe just Facebook almost exclusively in some ways, but it does feel like I have a secret and that makes me in the right side or the right club or whatever it might be. And it, it kind of goes like that. And that's the way the church it, it was like, we, we have something that the rest of the world doesn't. If they come to us, we, you know, we're willing to let them sit in our pews and tithe and do all that stuff. But you know, if they're not coming here, Sorry. And it did not feel loving at all. God was not loving. The church wasn't really that loving. It was really exclusive. And, and it took me literally moving to Seattle, Washington is the only way I would even have ever changed my mind. I mean, I, that's the only way when I saw just something else and then we got to tour the world and I got to see other people. And I was like, Oh, like you said earlier, Douglas, they're not so bad. Wait, they're, <laughs> lot, they're, they're probably almost exactly like me. There's just a few th- differences, but for the most part, we probably agree on, a lot of things, you know, more probably agree on more than we do less, but it's just these things we hold on to to, so tightly because maybe we were taught or it's in our memories, like we were talking earlier. And so I, 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 do you think that, are you seeing that too, Douglas? Like, uh, do you think that some of this is like that religious mentality that we're experiencing right now in this culture? Yeah. And I'd actually turn that around a little bit in that religion takes on that broader human mentality. And I certainly don't think that all human beings are like this, but I think it's a very common human tendency that uh, religious people and non-religious people fall into, that if you can uh, make the world to be simpler, Mm -hmm. to view the world in terms of a black and white binary dynamic, both in a moral sense and in a practical sense you feel better about yourself. And like you, you put so well, uh, my, my theory of conspiracy theories, that it's the, I know something that you don't because I know this secret. And we are this believers club. We have this. And like you say, maybe we'll let you in, but we ain't joining you. Right. And so it's this one way thing because it's a black and white, it's a binary. And what that does for people is it gives them a sense of identity this we know this we are separate and of course separate always means superior to it you know always and that is a way to create a self create an identity it's based on false premises and that's where when people leave those environments uh they then lose something you probably lost something yeah. as well as gained something when you moved to Seattle. No doubt. And that can be very jarring, shocking for people. And, and not everyone can handle that. But the conspiracy theory aspect of this is a more extreme version of, I think, is a very common human tendency to, we are self-segregating animals as much as we say we need other human beings. Well, we need human beings like ourselves. And it's, it is frightening. Uh, and like one of the, the things that I've written is about racism. And I say that racism fundamentally is cowardice. It's an inability to accept 
that people are different. Yeah. It's the lack of ability to accept that that person is different from me, but not lesser than me. It's much easier to say they're different and lesser because then I can compartmentalize everything. I can shove them aside. I can right. not care. I mm-hmm. not make that movement. And it's just easier for me. And I can hide in my little church or subculture or political party or whatever it is that I have and be apart from all these nobodies and lesser people. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, it gives you some kind of sense of power too. Like, like we were talking, like you didn't, you were th- that thrownness, you were thrown in the world. And now all of a sudden you have a, a team or supporters and you get those likes and you're like, it, it just is, it feels almost addictive or it is a, mm-hmm. a, a hit of joy, a hit of, uh, yeah, finally I'm on a team and people want to, you know, I wasn't yep. picked last. These people are, you know, really into <laughs> me in some way. Maybe that's a false joy. Um, in the sense, let's talk about love just a little bit more as a powerful concept. Um, and I think that you have a, a cool way of talking about Nietzsche and how I think he's and how he's often misunderstood, but you get love out of Nietzsche or joy, at least in, in a way where there's something about creating your um, I got from it that you're creating your own meaning, which is a creative and an opening and an act of love, whereas most people interpret him, you know, fundamentally in a negative way. Yeah, and a lot of that is the tragic accident of history that uh, Nietzsche didn't come to the English language world before the Nazis got a hold of him and changed a lot of his uh, interpretation. But of course, you know, Nietzsche's sister and her husband were the ones that collected his last works and published his last works, and they changed a lot of what he said. And they were horrible anti-Jewish people, uh, kind of predecessors of Nazis, uh, which did exist in German culture. The Nazis just tapped into that and exploited it. Uh, But at the fundamental, I mean, I'm not saying that Nietzsche is sunshine and light. Lord knows he's not. He he can be quite cantankerous and and contemptuous (laughs) of other people. But fundamentally, what Nietzsche is calling for is uh, to create, be an artist of your life, create your own joy and almost in a resentment way. I mean, he, he's the first one to use the term resentment in a philosophical way. But of course, he's uh, doing a whole big complicated thing with it. But he has it himself because he resents culture, he resents society, he resents Christians. Uh, so there's, there's that aspect to him. And so he's reacting against that. But what positive you can get out of Nietzsche is that he is saying, look, Every human being wants to have a certain power over their lives. Mm-hmm. When you accept that, I want to have power over my life, then that can turn into a positive thing. And where the Nazis took it and where his sister took it was to say that that means power over other people. You know, I can build myself up by tearing other people down. And that's what the Nazis did. That's all they did. But that's not what he said. That's not really what he was on about. It was the, the ubermensch, the overman who overcomes mm-hmm. his self. And, and Nietzsche was horribly sexist. So it is male. It's man. Uh, that person does not care whether they have power over anybody else because the power is in themselves. Mm-hmm. And so 
uh, one of the best descriptions that I've heard, not that I uh, entirely agree with it, but, but someone said that, well, Picasso is the Ubermensch that, that Nietzsche is talking about. The artist who, I don't care what the conventions are. I don't care what the critics say. I don't care what the audience says. This is my art. I don't like his art, but it's like, okay, so that is what turned you on. That's what made you happy. Uh, fine, that's, that's great. Uh, but that, that's that sense of that creative power, that dynamic. Uh, Nietzsche tried to, to frame it in terms of uh, the ancient Greek ideas of the Dionysian and the Apollonian. And the Dionysian is the, from the Greek god Dionysus who gave us wine. And he's the, the partier, the, the reveler in life, you know, Lahayim. And Apollo is the staid, controlled person. And Nietzsche says, we don't want to be controlled. We want to have fun. Not, not that he was terribly a lot of fun in a lot of respects, but that's the dynamic that he's trying to set up here is that to be Dionysian is to be human. To be human means to, I have power and I'm going to use my power. Yeah, it, I like it in the context of creativity in that way. Um, it's like to take ownership of your decisions. Is that Hegel says that? Yeah, that he's... Yep. Is that similar ideas? Like, you know, I am the author of these decisions and I can't explain it, but I just is me. I'm, I have ownership here or I'm going to tame. And, and then I guess into that whole thing of, I will be aware of myself in a way that I can then, you know, move from that and control my own self in more of an inner way than it is to, you know, will to power over other people. Yes. And, that's one of the things that Hegel started talking about. And there's this thread that goes from, from Hegel to Habermas to Honnet to myself, really, if I dare insert myself in that thread. But my, most of my work is based on Honnet, uh, Axel Honnet, the German philosopher. This idea that you are, you're, you're, formed by society. There's no question that we're formed by our society and by the immediate uh, cultural surroundings around us. Uh, I grew up in Minnesota. Toby, you grew up in South Carolina. I think you did too, I Matt, did too, South yeah. Carolina. Yeah. Uh, those are slightly different worlds. <laughs> and so we were formed by this. But then once you become aware that you are an individual responding to that environment, and can make do in that environment, create within that environment. And that's where I do depart from Honnet. And a lot of the people that taught me in my PhD were like horrified by this. Um, no, you can't say that the individual has control over his own life. Like, yeah, I can. And look at me do it right now. Thank <laughs> that I can do that. <laughs> I had some really bizarre conversations with these people who are my friends and I love them dearly, but they're whacked in the head on this issue. Uh, of course, we can affect our own environment. I mean, obviously, no, I can't become president. I can't uh, be the opening day pitcher for my baseball team because I, there's certain things I cannot do. But in terms of being my own self, of course, I can do that because I can make all kinds of decisions for myself. And that occurs within an environment. It occurs in dynamic interaction with all the other people and all the other social institutions that exist. But I have a say. And Nietzsche probably went overboard on that. Kierkegaard went overboard on that. Uh, but so much of philosophy now and so much academia and so much society is 
follow along. You have no real power, you have no control. Here's the music you're supposed to listen to. Here are the films you're supposed to watch. Here are the clothes you're supposed to wear. Here are the politics that you're supposed to believe. Here are the values that you're supposed to have. Well, you can disagree and you can disagree positively or you can disagree in that resent them all. Mm, very nice. It's a big fundamental decision. That's a nice way to tie that up. I appreciate that. And that gets into you as a philosopher, as in, you know, the goal, I guess, is to try to continue in the traditions and learn from the, the people and try to reach, you know, new ground, I guess. I, I think it's, it's very exciting. Um, the philosophy can get really dense and you have to throw the names, you have to quote the other people and there's some big concepts and everything. But I appreciate you spending time with us to to get into to do that. I, I think it's a. Um, I think it's a worthwhile endeavor because it's like this whole conversation we've had is on the level that is pre it's like lower, more fundamental than a political party or religion or anything like that. So I like that about this conversation is that talking about religion or politics would just be layers above the types of things we're discussing today, even though we've discussed on a small level, you know, and a big level. So I've, I've found it really enjoyable. So thank you for spending the time with us today to do it. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Yeah. And anytime you want to have me back, this has been a fascinating conversation. I think we accomplished a lot. Well, awesome. we'd love to have you back. I know you're going to have some articles that are going to get me in the future. So I'll, I'll hit okay. you up as, we, as soon as you write some more. <laughs> and, well, and, thanks and, and thank you for plugging my medium uh, site and, and, you know, insert philosophy here.com. And, and that's I've got your podcast. Video. Yeah. I've got videos. I've got podcasts. I've, and I'm writing another book and this and that, and I'm just way over burned out right now and trying to deal with there's a war not that far from me. I mean, you think about it, Kiev is as close to Prague as New York is from Chicago. Wow. It's not far. That's crazy. That, wow. And then I realized that, yeah. So it's, it, I mean, talk about a life-altering experience. There you have it. But you keep on going. And, and it's so important to talk about what you were saying, Matt, about uh, talking about what's underneath underneath the labels underneath and we never get to talk about labels actually but today but uh this has been fascinating i thank you very much